0: Good morning. The peace of Christ be with you. Uh, We are in the Gospel of Luke still, a sermon series in Luke's Gospel, and we're skipping ahead to chapter 6, verses 12 through 26. If you have your Bible turned there, as always, the the passage is printed in your bulletin. Luke 6, 12 through 26. Uh, One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. Not eight, not thirteen, not eleven. Everybody knew what was going on here. Every everyone understood that God created the twelve tribes of Israel, descended from the twelve sons of Jacob. And he called those 12 to be his special people and that through them the world would be rescued and God would fulfill his purposes for the whole world. So by now going about and choosing, selecting 12 men, this is Jesus uh, creating a a new Israel or, or maybe a renewed Israel. And then by designating them, as it says here, as apostles, which in the Greek means the ones who are sent, you know, Jesus is sending this Israel out uh, and these men as ambassadors to be um, the servants of his kingdom. And here we get their names. I mean, this in verse 14. Uh, this is our spiritual genealogy. You know, this is where our faith traces its roots back to. A man by the name of Simon, whom he named Peter. His brother Andrew. James. John. Philip. Philip. Bartholomew, whom we think was also known as Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. Verse 15, Matthew, also known as Levi the tax collector. Thomas, poor guy, he's always referred to as doubting Thomas. James, son of Alphaeus. Simon, who was called the Zealot. You know, a Zealot was someone who opposed Roman rule. Uh, by, uh, you know, uh, guerrilla tactics and, and violence, you know. It is, it's truly remarkable, I think, uh, that the fact that Jesus Christ brings someone like a zealot into his inner circle along with a Roman tax collector, I mean, you couldn't get two men who were more divided on the social, uh, socio-cultural political spectrum than a zealot and a tax collector. And yet Jesus brings... These guys, who should be mortal enemies, and who might even kill them, kill the other one, and he brings them together and centers them around himself. It's uh, there's, that's a beautiful picture of the church, is it not? Verse sixteen: uh, Judas, son of James, who is also known as Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples w- was there. And a great number of people from all over Judea. From Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, maybe say, let me say that again. Judea down in the south. Jerusalem in the south. The coast of Tyre and Sidon. All the way up in the northwest. We would assume all around the north and Galilee. I mean people who are coming from everywhere who had come to hear him, verse 18, and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch Jesus because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed or uh, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now For you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now. For you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you. When they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. I say rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. And then it goes on, um, but I tell you, you who hear me, love your enemies, love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. If you look at the picture on the front of your bulletin, so this is the traditional location where we believe the Sermon on the Mount was preached. The Sermon on the Mount is the most, you say, important collection of ethical teachings of Jesus Christ. It is found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And You know, the Sermon on the Mount and there, and this sermon in Luke chapter 6, uh, they're very similar, but they're not identical. And there have been a variety of explanations given to try and explain the discrepancies. Uh, Are these the same sermon? Well, it could be. It could be that since preachers reuse sermon material all the time, or or so I've been told, (laughs) um... These could, be, these could be two separate sermons that Jesus preached at different times, but that are using some of the same source material with, with slight variations. Or it could be that Matthew and Luke are recording the same sermon, but they do so with slightly different emphases, uh, uh, emphases highlighting different sections of that sermon. But if you look at the photo, so this is taken on a, a flat bluff that's about a, a couple hundred feet above the Sea of Galilee. You know, that's a location for much of Jesus' ministry. And it says in verse 17 in our passage that Jesus went down and he spoke to them on a a flat place. It says in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus went up to a mountain and he spoke to them. Well, you can kind of sense from this picture that it might be one and the same, right? This This is both a mountain, it's elevated, it's above the hills, and yet it's a very flat place. And If you were to go there today, I wish we could. I like it; wouldn't be so fun to go to to Israel and to see these places, um, to take the entire church. Uh, there's a monastery that's located a beautiful monastery in, in uh, this spot. So I included it in in your uh, on the front of the bulletin because I just I want us to sort of see the setting of this sermon. The crowds are huge. Um, You have a man who, to our knowledge, had never received any rabbinical training. Jesus Christ had never, you know, gone through any formal education. And yet, he is gathering such a large number of people. You know, on one occasion in John's gospel, it says that 5,000 men came to hear him preach. That was not including the women and the children. So if you add the women and children, you're talking as many as 20,000 people are gathering to hear uh, a, a man who... Who has no formal education or training. Uh, 20,000. And when you consider this. Astoundingly. The city of the village of Nazareth. In the first century. We think that it was only a village of about 400 people. So for an event like Luke 6. What I want you to see is. All of these villages. Have kind of closed down for the day. All the shops are closed. Everybody is vacated. All these little towns—they've all traveled on foot to come and see and meet this man, whom they've probably only heard about by reputation. Jesus. And so I want you to see these people in this photograph. Um, look carefully. Can you see them? What do they look like? Who are these people? Um, I think they were simple and, and poor. They were simple and poor. If they lived up in the hills, they probably herded a few animals. If they were down in the valleys, they probably uh, tended a few crops. If they were by the Sea of Galilee, they were tradesmen and fishermen. But almost all of these people were poor. They were illiterate. They had life expectancies that would have only been until their late 30s, maybe early to mid 40s. And for many many of them… They were just simply poor. We can flip the question back around. When this crowd that Jesus is looking at, when they look at Jesus, what did they see? They saw someone who looked just like them. They saw someone who was just like them. This Jesus, this man was poor. This man was from humble roots. He was from a village of 400 people. He was a simple man. He was so like them And at the same time, so unlike them, as we might say. Uh, Like, but so unlike. Because this man was like Elijah. This man has this remarkable power to heal people of diseases. And he preaches with such authority. When he speaks, they're like, I have never heard anything um, such as this before in my life. So that's the setting for this sermon. Let's look at the sermon uh, itself. The sermon, and I think this is a brilliant way to begin the sermon. His sermon introduction is very captivating. He starts the sermon with what? With beatitudes. From the Latin word beatus, which uh, are blessings. He starts the sermon with these very strange blessings, aren't they? Uh, since when were poverty, hunger, sorrow, and rejection a blessing? <laughs> and since when were riches? satisfaction, happiness, and popularity, a curse. To the average person, they're listening to him and they're thinking, this sounds crazy. Um, Even today, it it sounds crazy. I mean, basically everybody in the world lives their lives in such a way as to turn their poverty into riches, their hunger into satisfaction, their sorrow into happiness, and their rejection into popularity. Uh, What what an upside-down way to start a sermon. And yeah, what a genius introduction. Because um, not only, do you see what's happening? Not only does the sermon grab the listener's attention, but it makes the listener st- kind of step in and, and ask the question, why? How can this be? What, is, what does this mean? Uh, this is so upside down. This is so backwards. As I was thinking about this week, just kind of incidentally, you know, the Beatitudes function very similar to parables in the Bible. And if you remember, parables are one of Jesus' favorite ways of teaching. You know, a parable, the meaning of a parable is not immediately self-evident to the hearer. It's a parable is told in such a way as to be somewhat ambiguous and to cause the hearer to kind of step forward and to engage with the teacher, the teacher to... um, To force the listener to engage by asking questions. What do these things mean and why? And so that's what Jesus is doing. Why? Why would God's blessings be like this? What the Beatitudes are not. The Beatitudes are not, as they are often treated, a list of virtues. Um, Jesus is not telling us that we ought to become poor or hungry or disconsolate as though these things have some inherent value in and of themselves. As these things are are somehow uniquely virtuous. Um, No, the Beatitudes, I think, are best understood as consolations to those who are poor. Many of whom were in the audience right there who had become his disciples who were hungry, who had left their jobs, who had left their families, who might soon be being persecuted, who had left everything in order to come and follow Jesus Christ. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is proclaiming that the blessings of God are arriving in me. And I am sharing those blessings with you, with everyone who is willing to believe in me. And that's such great consolation if your stomach really hungry, (laughs) Uh, which is a concept like you and I can hardly understand. I mean, we just were never that level of hungry, or we're never this level of poor, are we? Or we're we're never this level of persecuted. Uh, It's so foreign to us in 21st century Boise, Idaho. But it was great consolation to them, and it is to us as well. Uh, Think of it this way. So in their day, honor was displayed, you were honorable, and you, you were known to be an honorable man or a woman by virtue of the clothes that you wore in society. So if you had a, a nice gold necklace, elegant robes, jeweled rings on your finger, all of that symbolized that you were a person of dignity who needed to be reckoned with, who needed to be paid attention to. If you wore poor clothes, then you were, you're were kind of invisible. You, you were like a um, oh, Ralph... It's the, Emerson's uh, invisible man. You're an invisible man. You To be poor in the ancient world was to be, in essence, powerless and invisible. We can see this uh, combination in, uh, in an unlikely place. The parable of the prodigal son. So do you remember when the son comes back from the pig pen out in the far country after having squandered the father's inheritance? Uh, the father says, quick, uh, bring the... Um, kill the fattened calf, we're going to have a festival. But he says this too. He says, go and bring the best robes and put a ring on his finger and new shoes on his feet. All of that, the the new rich clothing symbolized this son's transition from shamefulness, the shamefulness of his poverty, into a place of honor. Uh, And so many of the people who are in his audience, they're just, they're, they are dressed poorly. They, you could say maybe there's something wrong with them. Why are you so poor? Are you under God's curse? Are you doing things wrong spiritually? Uh, what have you done to deserve this? And Jesus looks at them and says, No, you are not cursed. <laughs> no, to you, the kingdom of heaven belongs. To you who have come and followed God's true and rightful king. the last thing I want to say about this is you may remember where the blessings in the gospel of Luke begin. They began back when Mary entered Elizabeth's house. Remember what happened? The baby in Elizabeth's womb leaped for joy. And uh, Elizabeth exclaims to Mary, the mother of Jesus, blessed are you among women. That's the first beatitude. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. And there you have a young single mom, pregnant, out of wedlock, poor, hungry, and potentially overwhelmed young woman who breaks out into a song of praise. Where she says, the mighty one, God has done wonderful things for me. Because he has lifted up the lowly and the powerless and the hungry. And he has, he has given me his blessings." So that's kind of the whole theme of the gospel of Luke. Is God taking the poor and bringing them blessings in Christ. Now, for a moment, I'd like to zero in on that word that we have here for blessed. Or I like to say blessed the old way, but blessed. Um, The word in the Greek is the Greek word makarios. And one of the ways, you go through ancient Greek literature, one of the ways that it is often translated is uh, it's a word of congratulations. So if you went to a friend's house who had just, um, they have a new child, what you would say to them is makarios. Congratulations. You know, fortunate are you. Fortunate are you to be so favored by God. Makarios. So that's one way that these could be uh, translated. Another way, and maybe some of your Bibles even translated as, as such, happy. Happy are you if you are poor. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. I'm not that big of a fan of the happy translation, but I want you to consider this, albeit lengthy quote by Ken Myers, about how the, the meaning of happiness and blessedness has kind of changed through the course of American history. It's a long quote, so you'll, you'll have to stick with me on it. But here's what he says. <clears throat> when Thomas Jefferson selected the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, to describe one of the unalienable rights of mankind, he was appropriating an idea that had a very long history I mean, since the time of Aristotle, and, and before even, happiness was understood as a condition to which all people properly aspire to. Uh, but for the Greeks, as for the biblical writers, happiness was not just a feeling or an emotional state. The phrase, whatever makes you happy, so commonly uttered today, would have been nonsensical to the Hebrews and Greeks and Christians alike. Because it implies There's no fixed moral order in which happiness resides. He goes on. Happiness to them referred to a state of human flourishing or well-being that aligned the life of a person with the highest good. A state of human being uh, or human flourishing or well-being that aligned the person with their... The the purpose of their life and their highest good. Actions, thoughts, desires, and ambitions had to be ordered in light of the proper purpose of life for a person to be truly happy and blessed. But what would happen with time in America is happiness, it it threw off the whole highest good uh, purpose of life thing and happiness has come to be understood as whatever any individual conceives it to be without any regard for a higher purpose of human life. And so now the pursuit of happiness is roughly synonymous with the pursuit of pleasure and the relentless quest for fun and an emotional state of carefree bliss. And this state does not need to correlate with any ethical choices one has to make Or the way that one orders one's life. In fact, you know, many Americans are committed to pursuing this kind of happiness by means of making decidedly bad ethical choices. And he goes on to conclude, The recovery of a richer version of human happiness is a project for for which we Christians are uniquely, uniquely situated. We believe, unlike most of our contemporaries, That we are made to delight in the knowledge of God and the love of God and to find our fulfillment as creatures only as we walk in his ways and as citizens as his kingdom. And while the world we know is disordered by sin, we recognize that true blessedness and happiness will inevitably involve suffering and persecution and sacrifice. But to the best of our knowledge, Jesus never asked his disciples, are we having fun yet? (laughs) Instead, he taught them that faithful servants would enter into the joy of their master on the last day. That's what was promised. And in the meantime, their blessedness is the fruit of aligning their lives with God's purposes for them. That was a mouthful. (laughs) A lot to process there. Um, I'll summarize it in an entirely different way. If one of your friends posts on their social media, hashtag hashtag blessed. You've seen that before, right? What does that mean? When do people post hashtag blessed? It's always when something good happens to them. It's always circumstantially driven. And it's always a function of something good happened to me and, and I feel good. I'm happy about this. This is, this is great. Happ, blessedness and happiness is entirely circumstantial and pleasure-based. Jesus says, no, no, no. Not for the citizens of my kingdom. Um, I don't want to put this too flippantly, but what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes is when our lives are aligned with his kingdom, when we are pursuing Jesus as as our highest good, our highest aim, then the entirety of our lives is hashtag blessed. Amen? Like even when our circumstances are going terribly for us, we, we not only can say, but we must say, if we're living the Beatitudes, blessed, I am blessed, I am blessed, I, I am flourishing, I really am flourishing. I'm flourishing as a citizen of the kingdom um, and as a son who has a gracious father in heaven. uh, As as someone who has a savior who's risen from the dead and a new family in the church. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way. But I really think it's a profound way of reordering our lives like irregardless of my emotional state or whether or not I'm having fun, I am blessed because the kingdom of heaven is, is here and heaven itself is not far away. And I've said this before, but you know, honestly, this world, it stinks at times, but this world is the closest that you as a believer will ever get to hell. This world is the closest you will ever get to hell. Um, that tells you how blessed you are. <laughs> And so if we die tonight, if we are in Christ, we die blessed. We die rich. And if we live tomorrow, we live blessed. And so friends, if you believe Jesus' beatitudes, then you will be blessed in all circumstances. And you will look for the opportunity to rejoice in all circumstances. And you will look for the opportunity also, and I can't wait to preach about this next week, to love your enemies. And to practice the kingdom ethic of love, which is especially demonstrated in our love for our enemies. More on that next week. All right. With that being said, let's turn our attention to the woes. Woe to you and woe to, woe to you. Um, woe is obviously a very old English word. And it, a woe is supposed to communicate something to your insides. <laughs> It would be like, if I could use this illustration or analogy, it would be like what a parent feels if they know their teenage child is out with friends and the parent falls asleep before the child gets back home and they wake up to a phone that's ringing and the parent answers it and it's the highway patrol calling. That's what a woe is supposed to do uh, to you on your insides. And so let's just let these... Rattle us for a second. Verse 24, read them with me. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. If Jesus Christ walked into Boise today, stood up on a street corner, and began to preach as a prophet, what do you think he would pronounce a woe on? What would Jesus woe today? I can think of a number of things, but I th- I'm sure he would pronounce this kind of woe. He would say, woe to you if you're living in Ada County and you're living the Idaho dream. Woe to you if you've never gone hungry, and you're living your best life now, and you're totally satisfied with the suburban dream. Woe to you because the, the poor are far be- better able to understand their absolute need for God than the rich, than you. Which is why Jesus will say later on that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a, a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. Uh, Our riches blind blind us to our need for God. We are blinded by our resources. We I've said this before. Make a list of the most materialistic people you know. You can do it right now. Make a list of the most materialistic people you know, those who are the the most enamored with having the newest version of everything, who are the biggest shopaholics. Who are the most brand conscious, who wouldn't dare wear clothing bought at Walmart, um, make a list, a mental list of, of the most material, materialistic people you know, got it, and what we discover is our names are not on that list, are they? Because we don't see ourselves that way. And if you were to go and interview somebody who was on your list, what you would find And ask them to do the same activity, you would find their names aren't on their own list. Because that is the nature of greed and materialism. It blinds us to its own presence. Isn't that kind of what we were saying prior to our confession of sin? That the really dangerous sins, pride and greed and etc., they have a way of absolutely pulling the wool over our eyes. So our first instinct, whenever we read a passage in the Bible about wealth, living as wealthy as we do, our first instinct should be, Lord, get my attention. <laughs> Please, if I am guilty of any of these things, I do not want to be that guy. How awful it would be to reach the end of our lives and find on the final day of reckoning to discover God was trying to say something to me about my wealth and affluence, and I was, I was not listening. Or how terrible it would be to, to in, enter on that last day and to think that this was as good as it ever got. <laughs> that my money and, and my food and all of that, this is as good as it ever got for me. No, um, God, please open my eyes if I'm guilty of these things. Here are a couple other ways I want to apply this, the sermon and, and then we'll be done. Since Jesus presents an upside-down kingdom, which is, I think, a great way of describing it, if we are citizens of the upside-down kingdom, then we will be suspicious of what the 83646 area code thinks is awesome. <laughs> or if you don't live, that's by, this is 83646. If you live in Boise, uh, West Boise, 83713. Downtown, 83702. If we're citizens of the upside down kingdom, we're going to be suspicious of what the kingdoms of the world tell us are awesome. For example, diet and exercise. Boise says diet and exercise is a must. You'll feel good, you'll look good, you got to be healthy, you got to be trim, you must eat the right things in order to to look right. And the Christian says, yeah, I mean, those things are are good things. Those things are important and and you do feel better if you exercise. But I'm not trying to live forever, am I? (laughs) You know what? I'm not trying to live forever. It's not that important. Diet and exercise... It's something I can live with or without. Uh, looking great is something I can live with or without. But if eight three six four six says you really must have this, I'm going to be like, "Really must have this? Oh, I'm not so sure." Or, or what about having an athletic kid <laughs> or having a bright student? I mean, that's the whole narrative today: is your child's success is. Everything. You know, either athletic success. And you know, I mean, you talk to some parents and you ask them how Johnny did on the baseball field the other day. And he went three for four with two doubles and, and uh, caught stealing. And I mean, they'll tell you all the statistics. Athletic success is kind of ultimate or academic success. We think that those things are necessary to help our kids live the dream life. And we try to live vicariously through our children. The Christian is going to say, sure, grades are important and sports are fun. But they're not that fun. And they're not that important. Again, I can live with or without them. You know, whether my kids have great grades or whether they have athletic access, I can be okay with it one way or another. Because that's not what I'm living for. Really, everything we enjoy in this life should be done with the attitude of, yeah, that's great as far as it goes. It's good, but it's not what I'm chasing. Right? It's not what I'm chasing. These things, as i said multiple times, I can live with or without them. Lastly, what I'd like you to do is try this maybe later today, maybe Sometime this week, uh, get out your journal and, and journal these things down. I would suggest to you that every one of us has an internal set of beatitudes and woes. We have our own set of beatitudes and woes, our own pattern of thinking. This is the blessing and this is the curse. And if you start digging a little bit inside of yourself, you'll, you'll discover these um, And you may find how out of touch your blessings and woes are with Jesus' beatitudes. Um, I didn't come up with very good ones, but here are a few examples. You know, blessed are the rich, for theirs is the kingdom of pleasure. And blessed are those who feel good about themselves, for they shall be confident. But woe on those who aren't handsome or pretty, for they shall experience rejection. And woe on those who are not sexually liberated, for they shall be missing out. And woe to you if you're ordinary, because being average is below average. (laughs) In conclusion, when we hear the Beatitudes, the first and foremost thing we should think of is Jesus, for Jesus is the blessed one. He is the one who humbled himself and became poor for our sakes. He is the one who went hungry for us. He is the man who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He is the one who has been reviled and rejected for us. So, in other words, the point of the Beatitudes and the Woes is not that we need to figure out if we're poor enough or hungry enough or sad enough, or or feel guilty if we have money in the bank. No, the point of the Beatitudes is to be united with the blessed one, with Christ. Because all of our blessings come from being united to Him. And therefore, if we are united to Him, we are truly blessed. Can you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am truly blessed because I am in Christ. In Christ Christ, Who experienced the woes. He is the one who humbled himself to the powerlessness and shame and poverty of a cross. These uh, folks who were there listening to the sermon, they couldn't have imagined that that was yet to happen. He is the one who humbled himself and entered into our hunger and our sorrows and rejection. And he did it all for the joy that was set before him. And God has highly exalted him and given him now a name that is above every name as the king and rightful heir of the universe. So Jesus is the blessed man. Uh, And friends, how happy and blessed are those of us who put our trust in him. Amen.